Shalom and welcome to Shomer Mitzvot, Torah Observant, a series on practical messianic living and apologetics. I'm the author, Torah teacher Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. Torah observance is a matter of the heart. It always has been and always will be. The Torah proper instructed the people of Israel to love Adonai your God with all your heart, with all your being, and with all your resources. This is where Shomer Mitzvot begins, by loving Hashem and accepting Him on His terms. By this, I mean accepting His means of covenant obedience. For today, this means acceptance of Yeshua, His only Son, for Jew and non-Jew alike. Okay, welcome to Exegeting Galatians, a Messianic Jewish commentary. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. I am a Torah teacher at Congregation Kehilat Tenuva. Today is Tuesday, February 9th, 2016. Let's open up with a word of prayer. We'll entertain a little bit of liturgy, and then we'll get started in week 16's study, okay? Let's pray. Avinu Malkinu, our Father, our King, Lord, we're excited we thank you, Lord, for indeed you are faithful. We know, Father, that you have demonstrated love for us over and over again. And so for that reason, we seek to avail ourselves of your guidance, of your spirit, of your very words of life. That's why we study, Father, so that we can press in, so that we may know your will, so that may do we may do what is pleasing to you, so that we may, uh, as the psalmist said, hide your words in our hearts so that we might not sin against you. Lord, help us to grow. Help us to uh, to continue to seek out a dynamic relationship with you, for that is the only way that we are going to make it in these dark and evil times. Help us as we uh, um, once again turn to the material that the Apostle Paul has coined for us, that he's penned for us, uh, namely the letter to the book of Galatians. Father, I ask that you will help me to recall the things that I've studied this week in preparation for tonight's teaching. I pray that you will... Um, give each and every student the supernatural ability to retain that which we go over, that which we study. Help them to um, to consider the words of the Torah and to, to uh, begin to put them into practical application. Uh, for what good is studying if we don't study in order to do, and then in order to teach others to do? So, Lord, we want to study your words so that we can put them, so that we can... Uh, uh, cause our mind to be re renewed by the washing of the water of the word. Uh, Father, forgive us for we fall short, uh, for we inde indeed we have lots of questions, but we're confident that your spirit will guide us and lead us towards the right answers. So for that reason, we look to you. Bless us tonight as we um, uh, continue to meet together during these live internet teachings. We'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all of these things in Yeshua's name. Amen. Well, uh, we're in week 16, as I mentioned, and we're going to do something a little different. I'm going to actually go back. I'm going to go backwards. I was going to move forward into section um, section 4 with uh, covenantal gnomism, but I did a lot of uh, rereading of 
of Section 3 works of law in my own commentary and a lot of restudying through some of the uh, uh, resources that I use to put together my commentaries. And based on what I perceive is uh, perhaps some, um, some confusion that maybe I... Uh, uh, that I may have taught during question uh, during section three. I'm going to actually go back and revise. I actually rewrote section three, proselyte conversion works of law, part one. And so, if you've got the commentary, which you can find online at uh, tetzetora.com, which is my website, t-e-t-z-e-t-o-r-a-h.com, right along the top, there's a menu section, global navigation section, with a link that says Galatians commentary. Just click on that, and then. You can find, uh, scroll down to section three, uh, proselyte conversion works of law. You can follow along online that way. Um, for those of you who are in the live study, I'll have the uh, commentary pulled up in front of you on your screen. But what I did is uh, this week I went back and revised that information because I think I'm I'm presenting information that's quite uh, different than the way you may have heard Galatians taught before, and I think I'm going too fast. Uh, so I decided to revise some of the information and, and kind of expand it and uh, further clarify it. And for that reason, we're not going to go forward into covenant into uh, covenantal nobles in section four. We'll stop at section three and just park ourselves out there for a little while until I feel that we've got the information down. Let's start with some liturgy. Uh, I'll read some. I'll read a passage out of the uh, Tanakh, out of the Torah proper, the first five books, Deuteronomy, to be exact. Uh, I'll read Deuteronomy 6, 1 through 9, which is a really familiar passage for those of you uh, in and among Messianic circles. It's part of the Shema, as you know. And then I'll read the Hebrew corresponding to that. And then I'll jump over to our familiar Galatians 3 passage, verses 10 through 14. I'll read that out of the ESV English, and then I'll uh, follow it up with the Greek as well. Okay, And um, I think I'll pause between the readings and tell you why I'm reading what I'm reading. Uh, because I, I keep saying that I'm going to do that, I keep failing to do that. So let's read some liturgy. For those students live with me in the class tonight, look at the screen, and you'll see I'll just read the ESV for you, starting in verse 1, Deuteronomy chapter 6. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. Let me go ahead and put a pointer on there so you can kind of see where I'm starting. Uh, should have a little blue arrow pointing and probably has my name underneath that where it says Torah teacher Ariel or something like that. So, we're in this paragraph. Uh, let me start over. Now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Hear therefore, or, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Starting at verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. Okay, and 
let me explain now why I'm reading these passages before I jump over into the Hebrew. The reason I uh, singled out Deuteronomy 6 for my liturgy is because we're going to be talking about the phrase that Paul uses in Galatians called works of law or works of the law. It translates the Greek ergonamu. Ergon is the Greek word for works, and namu is comes from the Greek word namos, which, which is usually translated as law in most Bible versions. And the reason I brought up Deuteronomy 6 is because traditional Christianity interprets the phrase works of law as works done in obedience to the commandment for the ostensible sake of gaining salvation or righteousness before God. It's no secret that traditional traditional, um, the popular view of Paul when it comes to this phrase works of law is that Paul is trying to um, challenge a view popular in his day. This is this is according to traditional Christian interpretation of the, the phrase works of law. According to the traditional view of the popular Lutheran view of Paul, uh, the problem with the Judaisms of Paul's day is that they believe that if they kept the Torah perfectly, that, that God would save them as a people group. And somehow this gets translated into, if I keep, as, if, as an individual, if I keep the law perfectly, I, I, although I don't understand how Christianity can uh, infer that a person could keep the law perfectly. What? How would they grade themselves? Uh, how would they measure their perfection? But nevertheless, uh, they teach that um, it's popularly taught in some Christian circles that that the Judaisms were believing and hoping that if they kept the law perfectly, that God would save them. And so, what I want to do is I want to show, begin to demonstrate that that particular view is untenable. It's unworkable. It creates a false um, caricature, a false um, uh, stereotype of the first century Jews and what their devotion to Torah entailed. In other words, it creates a false, what I believe, it, it sets up an inaccurate picture of Paul's Judaism. It, 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 it basically um, makes them out to be kind of stone-cold legalists who just uh, have merit theology on their mind, meaning they, they just hope that their good works will outweigh their bad works, and their good works happen, just happen to be works done in obedience to Torah. But what I'm going to begin to show you as by reading these uh, um, these uh, liturgies, sex selections, is that the Torah itself does not does not present the commandments to the people as a simplistic merit list, a simplistic, I call, ladder to heaven, where there, there's no hint or mention of, of any such theological approach or pattern of religion where God is essentially saying, Hero Israel, if you do what the Torah says, I'll save you, or I'll, I'll bring you into my courtroom, or bring you into my throne room and, and accept you, or... I'll, I'll meritoriously reward you. Now, don't get me wrong. The Torah is a, is a covenant of reward because it is a um, covenant of obedience. In other words, you, it's almost as if it's almost quid pro quo. If God, God says, if you do for me, then I'll do for you. But the obedience that God expects is obedience that is born out of genuine love for God. It's not that God rewards mere mechanical obedience, Rather, God rewards sincere, devoted love and obedience that follows from that devotion and from that loyalty to Him and to His covenant. And so that's why, historically, when you read through the, through the Torah, you'll find that God is pressing Israel into obedience with the, um, 
with the reward in view and and the immediate reward is is always based on the context and so the immediate reward that we read about in Deuteronomy is the reward of going into the land and living long in the land that's why the language is written that way and then later on oftentimes the reward for keeping the uh, commandments is uh, the prosperity of health the multiplic multiplication of um, offspring and of cattle and things like that. And so you'll find the rewards for keeping Torah. And then sometimes there's no reward even shown. There's no, um, there's nothing on, on God's side that says, I'll do this if you do, if you, if you obey. He simply just says, this is what you need to do. So that's one of the reasons why I'm reading some of the liturgy. Uh, I want us to be able to see that this false, um, this weak, maybe I shouldn't say false, uh, because surely some people in, in, in Judaism believe that if they keep the Torah, they'll be saved. But by and large, the people don't believe that. So I want to I call it a weak position that Christianity presents in support of their view of believing that Paul would uh, try and write in his letters, hey, stop keeping Torah in order to save you. In other words, I think that's a straw man argument. It's it's it's. It's a position that's easy to knock down because all one has to do is say, well, duh, it's easy. No one can keep the Torah to be saved. Therefore, the solution is to toss out the Torah, cast your faith on Yeshua, and live your life by the Spirit, which indeed, essentially, is the Christian position. Right? Okay, so let's, um, let's turn to the Hebrew of that same selection. Uh, for those of you who are in the class, I'm starting right over here on the left. I'm sorry, off on the right side, since Hebrew reads right to left. And I'll just read the Hebrew. And what I have in front of me is an interlinear screen where you can see the Hebrew. And then right below the, the, the black Hebrew script, the font, you can see the red type that is basically the translation, wooden translation, meaning it's word for word. So it's not going to be smoothed out in the English uh, like the ESV was. So let me read the Hebrew for you, verse, the same section, verses 1 through 9, and then we'll jump into our Greek, okay? Uh, the Hebrew of Deuteronomy 6, starting in verse 1, reads, V'zot ha-mitzvah ha-chukim v'ha-mishpatim asher tzivah Adonai Elohechem l'lamed etchem la-asot ba-eretz asher atem ovrim shama l'rishta. I'm sorry, shma l'rishta. Starting over here in verse 2. L'ma'an tir'ah et Adonai Elohecha let's scroll down a little bit. And we're starting right here. We're, this is the end of verse 2, this last word here. That says, Yamecha, which means that your days. We'll start in verse 3 right here with, V'shamata Yisrael v'shamarta la'asot asher yitav l'cha v'asher tirbun ma'od ka'asher diber Adonai Elohei avoteka lach eretz zavach chalav udavash. And starting in verse Four, which is our familiar starting place if you are uh, familiar with the um, 
with the Shema, then we start in verse 4 right here. Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad. And verse 5, Vahavta et Adonai Elohecha v'chol 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 ma'odecha. And starting in verse 6, scroll down a bit here. We'll start right about there. Vahayu hadvarim ha'ele asherer Anochi mitzavacha hayom al levavecha v'shinantam levenecha v'debarata bam b'shivdeka b'veteka v'lektaka v'derok v'shak v'kauv kumecha. I'm sorry. I'm starting in verse seven here. So let me read that again. Starting in verse seven, v'shinantam levenecha v'debarata bam b'shivdeka b'veteka v'lektaka v'derok v'shak v'kauv kumecha. And starting in verse eight over here. Uk sharatam laot al yadecha vahayu latotafot bain enecha. And verse 9. Uk tavtam al mezuzot betako vish araka. And as I mentioned earlier, uh, Hebrew reading right to left, if you're following along on the screen, for instance, I'll pick on verse, um, I'll pick on just the last verse. Uh, uh, the Hebrew reads, Uk tavtam, and let's see if I can go slowly. Uk tavtam. Al mezuzot beteka uvisharecha. And so to your eye, it looks like one, two, three, four, five words or clumps of letters if you can't read the Hebrew script. But if you can read the Hebrew script, uh, what you'll see is that the translation underneath in red that this particular interlinear version has uh, provided for us reads this way as we if we read it woodenly it would read and you shall write for uktavtam al is on mezuzot is the posts betaka is of your house and uvisharecha is and on your gates and the way it works is in hebrew the very first character there's a vav with a, a dot in the middle of it a cholam and so um i'm sorry not a cholam uh, I can't remember the name of the dot in the middle off the top of my head, but it creates the U sound. So, uch tav tam, uch, the root word there would be katav, which is the word, the verb for write. And so, the suffix at the very end, um, tam, is kind of like them, plural. Uh, so, we end up with uch tav tam, among you, you shall write. Uh, the plural of you is the tam at the very end, the plural for the masculine plural for a group of people. And whenever it's in the Hebrew is what we call male presumptive. So whenever there's a group of people, if there's a male in the group, then we the Hebrew drops over into the masculine automatically. If it were a group of all females, then it would be uktavtan. And the last letter, instead of being an M sound, would be an N, indicating that it's a femi feminine verb instead of a masculine verb. But since it's uh, written to uh, all of Israel, and Israel includes males, and it's uktavtam with the M. So, and shall write on you, the you being a collective pronoun of males. The next word, al, upon, and then mezuzot, the root word is mezuzah, which would be the singular. This is a feminine word, so uh, the, at least the word mezuzah is a feminine word. And the singular indicates the doorpost or the door jam of a door. And so since it's a plural word, then the feminine ending plural of the oat 
gets added. So mezuzah becomes mezuzah. Thus, we end up with the posts. The next word is beiteka. Uh, bait is the singular for house. And the echa suffix is the pronoun indicating your. And it's the masculine suffix. And so we end up with bait plus echa ends, uh, gets parsed into beit echa, which is your house. And then the last word is uvisharecha. Uh, we have the uv, the, the vav in the, uh, the beginning with the u dot in the middle, which is the word and, basically. And then uh, the uh, v is within, the very next vav there, is the kind of in, so and, in, or on, the preposition in, on, it's kind of uh, in, on, within. Uh, sometimes it's al and sometimes it's b. So in this case it's b, so it's u, v. The bet gets parsed into a v sound just grammatically because of the construct of the uh, next letter, the letter next to it. And then um, sha'ar is the root word for gate, which would be the singular. So, and the acha is the suffix for the masculine ending of the pronoun you or your. So it ends up being u v sha'ar plus acha, which ends up being. And that's why we end up with and on your gate. So that's our mini Hebrew lesson for those of you who are in the live class. I hope you enjoy that. Let's jump over into the Galatians passage and then read the corresponding Greek. Uh, this is Galatians 3, 10 through 14. For all who rely on works of the law are under curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. And why am I reading this verse for our liturgy? It's because of its relevance for our Galatians material. Remember, the prevailing Christian view of Galatians is that Paul is working from the misunderstanding that if the people would keep the Torah rather perfectly or somewhat, I'm not sure if, they, if most Christians believe that the Jews had to keep it perfectly. Some do, some don't. Either way, they, the, the standard Christian view is that Paul is... Um, challenging a notion that you have to keep the Torah. So whether whether perfectly or not is questionable among some Christian groups. But nevertheless, the prevailing view is that the Judaisms are thinking, the Jews of the first century were thinking if they could keep the Torah, then God would save them or God would reward them with salvation or reward them with some kind of righteous merit of some sort. In other words, it's merit theology, works versus, law, works versus um, the good works versus bad works. Uh, and Paul has to come along and set the record straight by telling them, um, no, you can't be saved by keeping the law, therefore throw out the law, cast your faith on Jesus, and you will be saved and you will be counted righteous. And um, in that interpretation and application, as you can see by my description, the traditional Christian view ends up tossing out the Torah, meaning they toss out the relevance of Torah as uh, the blueprint for standard everyday living, particularly that they toss out the parts that they call the ceremonial and the civil, and they keep the third part called the moral. In other words, Calvin broke the law down into uh, you know different uses, 
uh, first, second, third use of the law, etc. You, you guys are somewhat familiar with this. Um, Calvin's three uses, uh, or three parts of the law. So, um, the ceremonial, the civil, and the, and the moral. And the moral parts of the, are kind of like, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not commit adultery, etc. But the ceremonial and the civil are the parts that make you look, in my opinion, make you look Jewish. In other words, if you keep Sabbath, keep kosher, keep the festivals, wear tzitzit, etc., then people will look at you and they'll think you're a Jew. At least they will today. I don't know if they did back then. I, I'm pretty sure they did back then as well. If, if you kept those things, they, they, they were the things that Jewish people were characteristically known for, which is keeping these ceremonial parts of the Torah. So the Christian church comes along and says, since we're not Israel, we don't need to be keeping these ceremonies. Particularly, we believe the ceremonies have been done away with. And so historical Christianity has developed a viewpoint that Paul is uh, abandoning his Jewishness, as it were. Of course, I disagree with that position, and that's why I'm reading this liturgy, because Paul says all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. Now, it's interesting, according to the Deuteronomy passage, God wants us to keep the law, and all who would be keeping the law would be rewarded. Remember, it. if you're in the class now, I'll jump back over to the ESV, and um, the very first... Uh, Verse says, this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you. This is Moses talking. That you may do them in the land to which you're going to possess it. And verse 2 says, gives us the reason, the, the reward, that you may fear the Lord your God, your sons and your sons, by keeping all the statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life, that your days may be long. That very last clause, that your days may be long. Right? That's part of the reward. Um Another part of the word <clears throat> shows up in the end of part three. Hear, O Israel, be careful to do them, that you may multiply greatly. That's part of the reward that the Lord your God has promised you, and then that you'll go into the land flowing with milk and honey. There's another part of the reward. So we see that there is a reward that is attached to doing the Torah. And yet Paul writes in Galatians 3, all who rely on the works of law are under curse. Right? Curses everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book, which most Christians would interpret as um, everyone's cursed because they can't keep the law perfectly. And because you can't keep the law perfectly, you fall under a curse. And therefore, the solution is to stop trying to keep the law perfectly since no one can keep it perfectly, and therefore just rely on Jesus, and you will in fact be righteous. But I think that's a leap in logic because Paul would not believe that anyone should be trying to keep the law perfectly. What Paul is going to do is read the same Deuteronomy passage that we read and understand that there is a reward for keeping it, but that God never commanded perfect obedience. So then it begs the question, what does Paul mean when he says, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law? Well, we assume that by, by saying, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things, is equal with cursed is everyone who's not get everything perfect. But that's not what the verse says. The verse says cursed is everyone who not, does not abide by all things written. What that means is we need to accept all of the Torah, whether we can actually do it or not, whether or not it's incumbent upon us. That's what it means by to abide by all things. It doesn't mean that you have to keep everything perfectly. So the traditional Christian interpretation of this verse in Galatians 3.10 that uh, everyone who needs to abide by all things means that Paul is um, disagreeing with a Torah that expects perfect obedience. That's a, um, that's a, a weak view. 
So let's read the verse, and then I'll read the liturgy, and then I'll actually get into my teaching, because I feel like I'm starting to teach already, and yet I haven't even gotten to this material, right? Verse 11 of Galatians 3. Now it is, it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for, and this is a quote from Habakkuk, the righteous shall live by faith. That's the famous verse that Paul quotes in the first chapter of Romans, right? The just shall live by faith is how it shows up, I believe, in KJV. Verse 12, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. Let me pause and interject that. It says that Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It doesn't say that Christ redeemed us from the obedience of the law, right? Hint, hint. So, let's keep reading verse 13. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. Okay, let's read those same verses in Greek. I uh, apologize for some reason my uh, screen capture of this verse. If you're looking at the screen now, you'll see the very first top line uh, part of it got cut off. But we can still read the Greek. And since Greek reads left to right like English, I'm going to start right there with that first word, which is, says uh, hosoi. Uh, for those of you who can read the Greek with me, you're welcome to follow along and read the Greek. Um, for those of you who can't read Greek, you can do one of two things. If you're looking at the screen, you can either follow along and use the transliteration which is right above the Greek text, so it says hosoi, gar, ex, ergon, namu, asin, hupo, looks like hypo, but it's hupo, or hupo, actually, hupa, actually I should get, uh, pronounce my Greek a, bit, a little better, hupa, since the last word letter is an omicron, and for those of you who are following on the class, if you look at the interlinear that I'm using, Right below the uh, Greek text where it says hosoi, for instance, I'll pick on this first word, hosoi. It looks like osoi or something, uh, but it's the, this first letter, this omicron, has a, a breathing mark. I believe it's called a diacritical mark. Right, a, right in front of the uh, omicron, the letter O, omicron. And um, therefore, it gives a breathing sound, a rough sound. So it sounds like an H in front of the O. So it ends not being osoi, but hosoi. And so if you can't follow along the Greek, just follow along this little red uh, in, uh, translation underneath, which woodenly, again, uh, this whole first line, uh, if we were to read it woodenly, reads, woodenly, it would say, as many as indeed of works of law are under a curse are, it has been written, Indeed, cursed is everyone who not does continue all things, etc. So you get the idea. Wooden translations don't smooth out the Greek. They just show you word for word what's going on. So let's start over. I'll read the Greek for you. Uh, starting in verse 10, reads, Hosoi gar ex ergo namu, asin hupa, Kataren asin gegraptai, kar hati epikataratas pas hos, uk emene pasin tois gegramonois, en to biblio tu namu tu poiesai auta. Starting in verse 11. Hati de en namu, I'm sorry, namo, uh, udes dekutai, dekayutai. Let's start over. Let's start verse 11 over again. Hati de en namu, uh, udes de kaiutai 
para tothu de lon hatiho de kaios ek pistios zesitai starting in verse 12 ho de namas uk esten ek pistios al ho poiesas auta zesitai in autois and let's now move to verse 13 starting there Christas hemas exagorasin ek tes karatas tu namu genamenos I'm sorry yes genamenos hupar hemon katarahati gegraptai epikataratas pasho kremamenos epi kutsulu verse 14 scroll down a bit for you in the live class starting right there hina es ta ethne he eulogia to Abraham, which is Abraham, genetai in Jesu Christu, which is Jesus Christ, hina ten evangelion to penumatas labomen dia tes pistios. All right, and that's our Greek. And let me pick on the last verse, kind of like what I did in Hebrew. Um, in the Greek, we have hina es ta ethne, which is that to the Gentiles. Um, the preposition es ta Ethne, this prepositional phrase, to the Gentiles. Ethne, in the Greek, ethne is where we get our Greek, where we get our English word ethnic, um, is uh, the standard Greek word for describing someone who's a non-Jew, someone from the nations, a national, ethne. All right? Remember, we get our word ethnic from it. And then when we jump over here, hey, eulogia to Abraham genetai, um, eulogia is uh, the word for blessing in Greek, and it's where we get our English word eulogy. So when someone says a eulogy, the Greek word, the Greek root word of that is eulogia, and that's where we get our word um, eulogy. And then uh, to Abraham genetai, uh, Abraham is Abraham, and genetai uh, is that it might come, or it's, it's a verb actually. And then we have this phrase, in Jesu Christo, in uh, Jesu Christo, uh, there's a. If you're looking at the live screen, there's a little back and forth arrow between the the Greek word Jesu and the word Christo. That's because um, in the variant texts that show up in Greek, um, you know, there's thousands of different manuscripts, and as they begin to be copied from from one copyist to another, sometimes we ended up with typos or scribal errors where someone copied something different. So. Uh, Jesus Christ ended up getting swapped around from Jesus Christ to Christ Jesus and back and forth. So now we end up what we call variants. So whenever you find Greek texts that show the variants, like the Greek text that I'm, the manuscript that I'm using, which is, I believe, the Byzantine 1904 text, um, what we end up with is uh, the little arrow that shows up between the two nouns um, so that we understand that these can be swapped around in some texts. So uh, some texts say, and Jesu Christu, Christo, Jesu Christo, and some say in Christo Jesu. But it works out to be the same uh, because it means in Christ Jesus. Um, and in is the uh, preposition which means kind of within, uh, found, supportive of. And then we have Hina ten Evangelion tu pneumatas labomen dia tes pistios. Um, I want to focus on this word pneumatas or pneumatas. Uh, some people don't pronounce the P. Uh, some people do. Um, as far as the Koine Greek that I'm using here, 2,000-year-old Greek, not modern Greek, uh, pneumatos or pneumatos. I, I've been using the P, the 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 uh, first letter there, P, 
that you can see in the transliteration. Um, pneumatos is probably how most people are used to hearing it. And we get a lot of our English words that are, that are related to um, air, to, uh, uh, breathing from this uh, Greek uh, root word, uh, pneuma or pneuma. Pneuma. So, for instance, uh, pneumatic, uh, it means air-powered. Or um, pneumonia is related to our lungs, right? It's a sickness in our lungs. And so, these, these, whenever we're describing something in English that is rooted to the Greek word pneuma or pneuma, then it's, it's related to this air or breathing. And, of course, this is a perfect word for the spirit. This is, in fact, the, the Hebrew equivalent would be uh, ruach which means air, breath, wind, spirit, right? Or ghost, if you're reading the KJV. So, pneuma is the Greek equivalent of the Hebrew uh, ruch. And so that's why Paul carries it over, because it's what's used in the, it was the Greek word that was popular in Paul's day to speak of the ruch. And we already know that the LXX, the translation into the Greek, the translation of the Tanakh into the Greek also uses this word uh, pneuma or pneuma. So we have pneumatas labomen diates pistios, uh, spirit that we might receive labomen, dia through or from, or uh, uh, this preposition through, I'm sorry, um, with within, with, uh, how do we say, through or um, by means of, uh, tes pistios, uh, the spirit. Or I'm sorry, faith. Uh, pistios is our root word. Uh, pistos, pistis. I'm sorry, pistis, which is uh, our common Greek word for faith. So that's kind of our Hebrew and our Greek. Now, it's about 47 after. Let's jump into the lesson and see how far I can get. I hope you guys enjoyed the Hebrew and the Greek. Um, I won't always go that detailed into the Hebrew and the Greek each week, but I just felt so inclined. Uh, to explain a little bit why I'm reading what I'm reading and uh, give a little bonus for those of you who are Hebrew and Greek students. A disclaimer, I am neither a Hebrew scholar nor Greek scholar. In fact, I've I've been studying Hebrew off and on for about 20 years and Greek off and on for about 5 to 10 years. So uh, I'm, I'm still rough on the edges, so I apologize if I... If you Hebrew and Greek students who are listening to this, you scholars out there listen to this commentary and you have some serious disagreements with my explanations, feel free to write to me. Um, you can find my email at any one of my commentaries at tatesaytor.com. Scroll down to the very bottom, click on the little uh, envelope icon, and shoot me an email. I'd be more than happy to discuss and learn more. If you know more Hebrew or Greek than me, then you can send me an email and correct me. I'm, I'm open to correction all the time. So, All right, um, let's jump into the study. What I have been trying to entertain as one of the primary uh, points of my um, study to Galatians is that there is essentially there are essentially two ways to view um, to interpret Paul's writings and to apply them. So I like whenever I'm studying the Bible, I like to use that two prong approach. I first interpret and then I practically apply. Right, and in my step one of interpretation, I always try to go back to the original sources, that is to say, the Bible, the the the, the texts, the, uh, the the original manuscripts, if I can. And of course, you have to use a hermeneutic that uh, that tells you to go back to the historical, contextual, cultural setting that the writ that the uh, verses were written in. You cannot interpret the the, uh, the Bible through a modern twenty first hermeneutic. 
21st century hermeneutic, because that doesn't work. The Bible wasn't written in the first 21st century, although it applies to 21st century, but it was written, as we all know, um, in the first century, or it was written um, 2,000 years ago, if we just gen generally speak. And so when we're studying Paul, we have to try and imagine what were the words, what, how did the words mean, how do the, wor how do the words impact the readers first? Uh, what do the words mean to them first? And then once we um, do that part of our interpretation, then we can start to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to tell us, how do we apply these words to me today? How do I contextualize? How do I take something that Paul said 2,000 years ago and put it into action in my life today in 21st century, wherever you live, right? So um, there are two essential schools of thought when it comes to interpreting Paul. And I have, this is my own um separation of these two schools. There might actually be more schools, but I'm going to distill them into two essential schools, and here are here they are. Essentially, we have a school of interpretation that reads through Paul's writings, and the interpretation is generally an application, interpretation, I'm sorry, application, is generally an application that feels that, that law observance Remember the ceremony on the civil, the law observances such as Sabbath and the food laws and the and the other holiness laws, um, the purity laws. Those have all been relaxed in Jesus. They've been done away with in Christ. They've been fulfilled by Christ. That we're no longer under the law. That works of law cannot save. Therefore, we need to um, essentially move away from any approach to God that would include uh, a striving to keep the commandments. So, in a word. In this first school of thought that I'm describing, which uh, largely resembles uh, much of Christianity today, uh, essentially the law, the law as it is um, seen through the lens of the ceremonial and the civil, is no longer applicable for a Christian. Meaning, we don't have to keep Sabbath, we don't have to keep kosher, those things. However, there is a second school of thought that reads through Paul's writings and comes up with an interpretation and an application that is not exactly the opposite of the Christian interpretation, but when it comes to keeping Torah, there is a definitely a pro-Torah stance so that we have a, a, a large, growing grassroots movement, as it were, among Christians today. We refer to these people as Messianics. I'm one of these people, by the way, Messianic. And this term Messianic, which really means Christian, but the word Messianic is buzzword for a Christian or a Jew who feels that they should be keeping the Torah, meaning the ceremony on the civil parts of Torah that are applicable can still be done. Obviously, no one today can keep the sacrifices, right? So that we don't even have to entertain that ridiculous, um, confusing uh, possibility as to whether or not the sacrifices are, are should be done today. No one can do them because there's no temple and there are no functioning priests. So we don't have to worry about that at least until God builds another temple and, and, and hires a new group of priests, and then possibly we'll have to start looking at that again. But when we're talking about reading through Paul and interpreting his letter as, yes, we still need to be keeping the Torah, like the Messianics do in the, in the second school of thought, then we end up with um, people who try to conduct their lives around keeping Seventh-day Sabbath, uh, kosher. In other words, they avoid shrimp and ham and things like that. And they try to wear mezuzot, I'm sorry, try to wear tzitzit and keep a mezuzah on their door, like we read in the Deuteronomy Shema passage, right? Al mezuzot uvisha arecha uktaptam al mezuzot put the mezuzot, write them on the doorposts of your houses and on your gates. 
So we have these two schools that basically are in competition. They're not in competition over who the Son of God is. Both groups are Christian. Both groups uh, affirm the centrality of Jesus as Messiah and of his lordship and of the necessity of, of his atoning work on the cross and of his, of his uh, intercession and further um, uh, interceding for us uh, at the right hand of God. So it's, it's good that both groups can affirm and to agree on that. For that reason, you can have, you'll have both groups kind of interacting with one another very closely, Christians and Messianics. Uh, are often found um, in close relation to one another. So often they'll be attending each other's churches and synagogues uh, as guests and things like that. I have been invited to many, many churches throughout the years, even to churches who don't espouse to the Messianic view that we should be keeping Torah. They will still invite me as a Messianic Jew to speak on these matters because many of them are interested. So many well-meaning Christian uh Friends, family members, pastors, things like that are interested in this second school of thought of, of reading through Paul with the idea that possibly the first school, the first view might have some weakness in it. And so we find many people switching um, from the first camp of, of a law-free gospel, as it were, to the second camp of a pro-Torah stance. And so, Baruch Hashem, that's all I can say, bless, bless, bless God for that, because I firmly believe that we should be keeping the Torah. And not, not simply because I read through Paul with that particular hermeneutic, but also because I read through the Torah, and through the Tanakh, and through the prophets, and through uh, Yeshua's writings, Yeshua's sayings with that viewpoint, because I don't believe that God has done away with his law. I don't believe that Paul would teach us that we need to relax the law. Paul would, in fact, tell, teach us that we need to understand our relationship to law and not misuse it. So let's talk about proselyte conversion works of law. We don't have a lot of time in tonight's study. I'm just going to kind of whet our appetite. I've already taught this study to proselyte conversion. We were actually supposed to move on to section four. But because of the interest that is being stirred uh, by the questions that are being sent in to me by email, and because of the interaction that I'm receiving from the students who join the live classes, who are saying, Ariel, can you go a little slower and go back and explain how you think that works of law means what you say it means? Can you give more support for that? Because I'm not fully convinced that works of law means what you say it means. Now, what do I say works of law means? Well, I think that works of law doesn't simply mean works done in obedience to the law in order to be saved or in order to be counted as righteous. I don't think that Paul uses his phrase, ergon namu, as simply trying to uh, explain mere works righteousness. And there are a good number of well, well-educated scholars who hold the same opinion that I do. In fact, I was convinced probably 15 years ago that works of law doesn't exactly just mean works righteousness by studying through some of these other authors, authors such as uh, Tim Haig, who is one of my favorite authors. Um, I'm currently in one of his uh, weekly Bible studies. Him and Tim and I are actually in dialogue with one another on a weekly basis. Um, I, I'm one of his students in one of his classes as well as we correspond. So um, I've spoken to him personally. I have lots of his books, The Letter Writer, uh, The uh, Fellow Heirs book, his Galatians uh, commentary, things like that. And I highly recommend it, Tim Haig, to any uh, believer who is interested in further investigating 
the, this uh, messianic view that the Torah is still relevant for us as believers, uh, look up Tim Hegg. That's H-E-G-G, Tim Hegg. All right. Um, another author that's going to go a long way towards reinterpreting Paul in a, in a different, what I call more accurate historical light, is uh, E.P. Sanders. Um, I quote his material quite a bit. Also, we have uh, Tom Wright, or his shows up as N.T. Wright, letter N, letter T. Uh, he's a, um, I believe he's Lutheran, if I'm correct, current author. Um, these are all Christians, by the way, the, the men that I'm, uh, the men and women that I'm uh, listing. Um, don't worry if you if if you don't have a list of these, um, you can write to me and I can send you a list of some of the some of the authors. Otherwise, they just show up in my commentary all over the place because I quote them extensively. So uh, Tim Hag, N. T. Wright, E. P. Sanders, um, Mark Nanos, N. A. N. O. S. Mark Nanos. He's another author that uh, is a pro Torah and in favor of reinterpreting Paul. What we call New Perspective Paul. Kind not not. Not 100% new perspective, but new reading of Paul, a better understanding of Paul. So essentially, um, when I described those two schools of thought, traditional Christianity, who has the belief that the Torah has essentially been relaxed, and the second view, the Messianic, I'm calling the Messianic view, which believes that the Torah is still relevant, those two schools of thought are also referred to in scholarly writings as Lutheran Paul or Reformation Paul. That's the traditional view where... We believe that the Torah has been relaxed. And then we have this new school that has been um, labeled by uh, James D.G. Dunn. He's another author that you can pick up that's pro-Torah, pro-reading through Paul with a correct lens. And this new view has been coined by James D.G. Dunn as new perspective on Paul. Um, new Paul perspective is how he describes it. So... What I want to do is begin to read through my revised version of um, Prosite Conversion, Works of Law, because I believe that Works of Law is Paul describing a sociological phenomenon that existed in his day that um, we don't really describe very much today because it, it's not as relevant for us today, or at least it's not as prevalent in Christian and Jewish circles because the Jewish and Christian groups of today have kind of separated into their own... Um, uh, what do we call locally autonomous groups, whereas in the first century they were still smashed together, uh, more or less like one community. In other words, the Christians and the, and the Jews, uh, the Jews and the upcoming Christians were, the, the, let me say it this way, the, the Christians of the first century were still a subset of Judaism. They had not broken away from Judaism's cradle. So uh, for that reason, works of law that we read about in Paul doesn't have capture the same force as it as today as it did back then, but I think that works of law is, is more than just merit theology. I think it's a little more than just Paul describing works of law. What we what I believe, I'll just tell you, um, I'll tell you what I believe works of law means, and then I'll read through my commentary. As opposed to normally, I would read through my commentary and then explain what I mean by what I just read. But let me do the reverse. I'll tell you what I what I think, and then I'll read start reading through my commentary and see if you think I'm forcing the fit, as it were. I think that works of law in Paul is a reference to uh, the, the the badge of membership that describes um, my place in the community of Israel. And works of law is kind of a sociological term that describes a mindset, it describes a policy, it describes a short list of rules that 
a person might encounter if they were, say, joining a larger group, the larger community of Israel. For instance, we have two scenarios. We have a community of Israel, which is composed of largely of people who were born into this community by heritage, meaning they are born Jews. They're born into this, they're born into the family of Israel by native birth, by natural birth. So they're born Jewish, and because they are born Jewish or they marry into Jewishness, um, because they're born Jewish, then from their perspective, they are born into the covenant. They don't have to do anything to get into the covenant, the commonwealth of Israel, to the people group. So as far as belonging is concerned, they are born with their identity. And with that view, when it comes to Torah and the obedience of Torah, essentially their responsibility to the covenant is that they need to maintain obedience and loyalty to God, and they need to abstain from cold-hearted disobedience and eventual idolatry that comes from uh, having a cold heart. So from their perspective, keeping Torah or loyalty to the Torah is more of a maintenance. It's more of staying in because God repeatedly uh, warned Israel over and over again that if you break my covenant, if you violate my commandments repeatedly, then I will not only punish you, but eventually I will kick you out of the land. In other words, I'll put you out of the people group. So you get kicked out of the group, to use modern language. So in this first scenario, for a Jew... There are two steps. Think of it like one coin with two sides. The first side of the coin uh, describes identity, and the second side of the coin describes responsibility. And the first side of the coin for a Jew is identity, meaning they were <clears throat> born with it. Uh, they don't have to do anything to get it. They just got it naturally. It's given to them by election, by, by birth. And that's the way they viewed it, is election. They called it grace, basically, because God graciously granted them birthplace into Israel. So they are born with covenant membership on their, from their perspective. And so for their part, most of their um, concern needs to be placed on the maintenance side of the coin, the obedience side. So that's the first viewpoint that we need to consider. The second viewpoint that we need to consider, the, the second aspect of this works of the law from Paul's writings, is that we need to, when works of law is applied to a Gentile, okay, so the first application is for a Jew of works of law. For the second application for a Gentile, someone who's not born with covenant membership, for them, works of law, the first side of the coin, is that they need to contend with identity. And so what do they need to do? They need to become a Jew first. And that's where the proselyte conversion comes in. So for them, the first step in becoming a covenant member within the commonwealth of Israel is to convert and to take on legal Jewish status. And that involves circumcision for the men, which, um, if I'm correct, I think that circumcision was one of the last steps. Uh, but there's at least three steps, perhaps more, but there's circumcision, like step one. There is the mikvah waters, which today we would call baptism, that's one of the steps. It might be step two. And then there's the bringing of a sacrifice when the temple was still standing. That would be one of the steps, like third step. And I, I'm off the top of my head, I can't remember in what order they were, if circumcision was last or if circumcision was first. But it doesn't matter. The point being, for our discussion, there, were at least, uh, there was at least what we call circumcision, which was a code word for Jewish identity, meaning proselyte conversion. If you were a Gentile, you had to convert and become a Jew. That was the first side of the coin. That was the identity side. So works of the law is describing this social requirement to get into the group 
if you were a Gentile, the first step would have been the conversion, the proselyte conversions part, which we call circumcision or circumcised. To get circumcised is just simply a, a fancy way of, in first century Israel to say, become a Jew if you weren't already born a Jew. But then once you became a Jew, then the second side is identical to the Jewish people, meaning it was maintenance of the Torah. So when we're looking at this phrase, works of the law in Paul, and Paul says that we're not saved by works of law and that no one will be counted as righteous by the works of the law. I don't believe that Paul is simply saying that we won't be saved by obedience to the law, but rather by faith. Theologically, from a, from a, from a generic theological perspective, that, that's true that Paul would disagree with any such misuse of law. But historically and sociologically, Paul would need to warn anyone against misusing law that way because I don't the his, the um the uh, rabbinic writings don't show the the Tanaitic literature of the first century doesn't indicate that that was their mindset and so um that's where I'm going to begin to start developing it and many of you are probably wondering gosh Ariel if that's all that your Galatians material is about why are you so persistent with this view what what's the big deal about whether or not we interpret works of law as mere merit theology commandment keeping or works of law as this sociological badge uh, that you're describing uh, that describes Jewish identity and uh, uh, obedience in other words whether or not works of law is the, uh, the new perspective or whether works of law is the Reformation perspective what's the big deal Either way, the solution from Paul's perspective is the same. None of that other legalism will save you. Only faith in Jesus will save you. Some people ask me that crucial question, Ariel, what's the big deal? Why, do you, why did you write 130 pages now? My commentary grew by, by uh, eight more pages this week as I sat down to write some more. Why are you writing 130 pages <clears throat> to explain to everyone that they need to change their view on works of law? What's the big deal? Well, here's the big deal. Remember, going back to my two-step approach to Scripture, two-pronged approach, which are first step, interpretation, second step, application. Remember that? Well, in my experience with uh, interacting with people of the Christian background who hold to the Reformation view of Paul when it comes to interpretation, most of those same people hold to the application of Reformation Paul, or Lutheran Paul, as Torah being done away with. And in that application, we end up disagreeing with a large percentage of the scriptural passages that teach that the Torah will still be in force for a believer, especially for a Jewish person. It also, that hermeneutic, that viewpoint, also disagrees with the historical accounts that we read about in the book of Acts, where Jewish people, when they came to believe in Jesus, they weren't walking away from Torah. In fact, their Torah obedience became more zealous. Recall uh, Paul's own experience and his own testimony later on in life. He said that he did nothing against the law, that he, that he, that he believed everything in accordance with the law and the scriptures. Recall Acts 21, where James uh, is describing that, all of, that there are many myriads the Greek has for thousands of Jews who believe in the law, I'm sorry, believe in Jesus, and, and James says they're all zealous for the Torah. And also recall that if you go back into your own uh, Old Testament scriptures, um, your own Tanakh, that the prophets are replete with promises, for instance, in uh, Ezekiel and in Jeremiah, 
they are uh, chock full of promises where God says that he will, speaking to Israel, that he will institute a change of heart. He will take out their old heart of stone and he will replace it with a heart of flesh. He will fill them with his spirit. And the result will be that they will be obedient to his commandments, that they will walk in his ways, that they will become observant. So we can't have God promising to Israel that one day he will give them a new covenant. He will take out the heart of stone, put in the heart of flesh, fill them with the spirit, and that they the result is that they will be that they will walk in his ways. We can't have God saying that in the Old Testament. And then have Paul come along, according to the Lutheran view of Paul, according to the Reformation view of Paul, we can't have Paul come along and apply an application, uh, an understanding that teaches that we don't have to keep the law anymore. Do you see my point? That's the big deal. That's the big deal I'm trying to make in my Galatians commentary. And much of it centers on the way we interpret Paul's phrases, such as works of the law and under the law. And that's why I'm focusing in on those two statements, works of law and under law. That's why I spend so much time, not necessarily on what does it mean to be righteous in Paul. That's a whole other teaching. We haven't even touched on that yet. Um, What I spend a lot of time on with Christians is understanding Paul's phrase, works of law and under law, because it drives, it fuels their, their interpretation and application of Paul. Again, it's no secret that most uh, standard Christian views of this phrase, works of law, the interpretation and application is that the interpretation means that works of law is works done, works of the Torah done in obedience to try and save me or be righteous, and therefore the application is because Paul says that works of law will not save, and that only faith will save, faith in Christ will save, therefore the application must be that we need to walk away from, run away from, steer clear of works of the law, which is equated with Torah obedience, and we need to run into Christ and the uh, love of Christ and the um, law of Christ. And again, it, it, is a, it is an application, it is an interpretation and application that, I'm sorry, but it disagrees with what we just re- read in Ezekiel and in Jeremiah. Well, we didn't just read it, but we referenced it. You understand my point? So when we have a viewpoint that, uh, when, when our view of the New Testament seriously disagrees with the views of the Old Testament, it should raise some red flags, shouldn't it? I know some people say, well, of course it disagrees because the Old Testament's being phased out and the New Testament's being phased in. I'm sorry, that viewpoint is also uh, weak and erroneous, right? It's, there's there's manifold problems with, with the uh, view that the Old Testament is out and that the New Testament's in. Namely, it uproots many of the promises given to Israel. Essentially, it's replacement theology, people. It's demonic supersessionism is what we're talking about, where the new people of God supersede the old people of God. The Christians uproot the Jews for the people of God. The the Jews are out, the Christians are in. Bye-bye Jews, hello Christians. I'm being very dramatic for a reason, because I'm trying to uh, get you to to understand the the manifold problems with with holding to the replacement theological view, the, the supersessionist view that Israel's out and that, 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 uh, that the Christians are in. Namely, Paul would disagree with that because Paul, I don't have the time to develop this, but Paul says in Romans and he, he hints at it in Galatians that God has not replaced Israel. God is not done with Israel. God has not um, uh, abandoned Israel, right? The promises to, to, made to Israel 
um, are irrevocable. They're irrevocable, right? The covenant promises that God made to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob stand forever. And if God can't be trusted to keep his word to the Jewish people, then Paul warns us in Romans chapter 11 that he can't be trusted to keep his promises to you Gentile Christians either. And we know that God does keep his promises. So with that, I don't have any time to actually start opening up the commentary, but um, again, my aim is not to go fast. My aim is to, is to be thorough. So next week, we'll start right here on page 17 with section 3, Proselyte Conversion Works of Law, Part 1, Understanding the Background. And this is my revision. We'll start reading through it as I've revised it and um, see what we can make of uh, some of the information. Okay? So let me pray and dismiss the live class. Uh, I'm sorry, dismiss this recording. And for those of you in the live class, stick with me because I still have the uh, chat room open for the next 15 minutes and you're certainly welcome to, uh, we can dialogue about what we talk about. Okay, let's pray. Avinu, Volcano, our Father, our King, Lord, we are blessed to sit in your presence, to soak up the Spirit and to learn of Yeshua. Father, Lord, uh, Father, we know that, that um, your words are written on our heart and we know that your Spirit will remind us of these words and cause us, bring us to bring them to remembrance so that we can indeed walk in them. Lord, we want to be a light. We want to be salt. We want to be a witness to those people around us who don't know the gospel. We want to have boldness, holy boldness. We want to be able to pray with strength. We want to be able to know that we can take a stand against the adversary and against the wickedness and the evil of this dark day. We want to know that um, you have promised that you will never leave us nor forsake us. We want to know that your promises of seeking first the kingdom and your righteousness uh, and all the other things that are added, Lord, we want to order our lives according to what you have promised, not according to our own fears and, and faults and failures and, and our own um, uh, concerns. Lord, we want our mind to be, we want to have the mind of Christ in us is the point. And so for that reason, we avail ourselves of the word because only by being anchored to the sure word of God will we be able to stand against the winds of adversity today. Will we be, will we be able to um, be a strong witness? Will we be able to be, be healed in our, of our infirmities? Lord, as we place our trust in you and continue placing our trust in you, help us to grow our dynamic relationship with you, but not let it become cold. Help us to foster the flames of our first love. And forgive us, Father, where we fail you. Help us to turn from sin. Say no to sin and say yes to Yeshua. As Paul says, to walk by the Spirit and not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. So go with us this week, Lord, and help us to be diligent to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen that need us not to be ashamed, but rightly divide the word of truth. And we'll be careful to give you the praise in all things. B'shem Yeshua. Amen. That concludes our show for today. It is my desire that this continuing series of teachings will assist the average non-Jewish believer or new Messianic Jewish believer in his desire to become a more mature child of God. And now, O Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. To the Lord your God belong the heavens, even the highest heavens, the earth and everything in it. Yet the Lord set his affection on your forefathers and loved them. And he chose you 
their descendants above all the nations as it is today. Circumcise your hearts, therefore, and do not be stiff-necked any longer. Because the Torah is written on the hearts of all who truly name the name of Yeshua as Lord and Savior, it is meant to be followed to the best of our ability. We have no reason for fear of condemnation or the trappings of legalism. My name is Ariel ben Lyman Hanavi. The intro and outro song were written, produced, and performed by Ryan Kingsley. For more information on contacting Ryan, you can reach me by email at yeshua613 at hotmail.com. That's Y-E-S-H-U-A number 613 at hotmail.com. Or visit our website at graftedin.com. That's graftedin.com. <laughs>